Hello. This is a preview for our latest bonus episode, where I interview C. Derek Varn, an educator, editor at Zero Books, and also a podcaster. We talk a bit about Theodore Adorno, and in this clip, you'll hear us discuss domination, some of the shortcomings with the way that Adorno thinks about society, but also the problems that he's raising that are worth looking at. I hope you enjoy. If you want to listen to the whole thing, you can support us on Patreon for $3 a month, and you'll get regular bonus episodes like this with the regular roundtable episodes. Right now you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but soon you'll hear a little bit of my conversation with C. Derek Varn. Though he does hammer home the the fact of his conception of uh, you know social life being so dominated, we appreciated it and w- said it was much more complicated than people say. But there is a reason that there's the joke about the you know did you know it's fascist to open a door like <laughs> yeah kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and to me that's a fair critique, frankly. Like that's a problem with this line of thinking. And the other problem with this line of thinking to me is that it doesn't deal with doesn't deal with a couple of things. I mean, one of the things that it points out about, say, the culturalist turn on proletarian culture, and particularly those who study proletarian culture in the capitalist world, as opposed, as opposed to, like, pro-cult, which is really a different thing, or, like, the council communist type understanding pro-cult, is that by the time that you're talking about proletarian culture in developed commercial consumerist society, it is not separate from capitalist production. It's... And that's an objective fact. And people like Raymond Williams, to me, have never completely dealt with that. But what they see, though, is that there is an impact, a proletarian taste on that production. It's not like the capitalist totally set the taste vectors. And so dialectically, you'd think it would be like Adorno's opinion on popular culture would be more mixed. But since he's more interested in pure negativism... He's more interested in like avant negations of current artistic fads than he is anything really class based. And that's another thing I think you can throw at Adorno is that Adorno is so frustrated by what's happened with the working class in the developed world by the 1950s that he basically sees them as a non-factor. He doesn't see them as a revolutionary subject. He doesn't even talk about them in most of his writings that way. He sees capitalism more as a system. It's something more like you'd see in Moshe Postone. Um, and the the class agency, even though class conflict is still key to this, like he basically sees the dominion and hegemony. I mean, he doesn't think in terms of hegemony. That's Gramsci. But for for your listeners, it's a good way to understand it. The, the dominion and instrumental reason um, from capital itself has pretty much made the class conflict, a done deal. I mean, you, you kind of get the feeling that Adorno thinks the good guy's lost. Um, and that's why you don't read him talk. I mean, he just doesn't talk about the working class that much. Uh, ben, ben Hameen does, but we don't really see it in Adorno. And um, you get some really... Adorno's relationship to Horkheimer is interesting because Horkheimer's politics do get reactionary. Adorno is more quietistic than Horkheimer. Horkheimer ends up supporting like the American side of the Vietnam War. 
because he's so terrified of well it's one of those things where they do they do have the unfortunate tendency of just like starting to call things fascist just all the time kind of right and so you get so you get this like oh the ussr and chinese blocks are just another form of fascism so we should support america in vietnam to prevent the rising tide of red fascism and stuff which i believe is what part of what horkheimer says right is his justification um though yeah adorno doesn't really adorno just quietly critiques things yeah he he doesn't he doesn't endorse politics like that i mean i think I think in some sense he has kind of just given up the modern world to fascism, period, <laughs> you know, and Horkheimer hasn't. And then Marcuse takes him, you know, Marcuse definitely flirted with Maoism. So it, that like that wasn't consistent to the Frankfurt School either. Um, and some of these things that we emerge as like this unified picture of the Frankfurt School. I mean, you know, if you read Martin Jay or even some of the more recent studies on it, you realize it was much more at odds with itself, um, then we tend to understand it. And that, that Adorno probably wasn't the most pessimistic one. It was probably Horkheimer who just, you know, thought that (laughs) red fascism was so dangerous that, you know, whatever, whatever. One of the problems with the Frankfurt school is they don't have a very, they don't have a political economic definition of fascism. Their their definition of fascism is almost phenomenological. Like, it's basically authoritarianism. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of mistakes. Um, like, you know, um, when... Like, even, even, like, the most vulgar Trotskyists can distinguish between fascism and Bonapartism. And it may be fair to say, for example, that... China under Mao was something like red Bonapartism, kind of. Um, but it's completely not fair to call them fascist. That doesn't really make sense. Like they they don't have most of the the national the national mythos. However, to be fair, when you when if you're coming out of the language of watching um, national syndicalism degenerate and the you know the the kind of left tendency of the socialist in Italy to turn into fascism. And you see talk of proletarian nations coming out of China, which I'm not sure, you know, which did happen. I'm not sure that Adorno and Horkheimer knew about it. I could see why that primal trauma would like trigger you because it's the same language that was used by the Italian fascists. They also talked about proletarian nations. So, I think the problem is they just they start treating, you know, it's one of those hammer nail things like they start treating everything as the same, because I also don't think like American dominion of social life is really fascistic. It's something else. Yeah, that's like that's one of those things that I I remember watching. There's that guy, Gabriel Rockhill, and like I think he's actually like pretty smart and he has some interesting stuff to say on like, you know, the whole CIA in post-structuralism thing but he does do that thing where he's like well frankfurt school gets involved in the cia except for marcusa so marcusa is good because he's in the new left um but but he also has one of those things where he just says like oh well fascism is already existing as like a subcurrent strain it's just not like explicit in the u.s or something like that you know like 
fascism exists for some people, but not others is kind of the way that he treats it. Um, so you get that weird, like, oh, fascism is a political system of domination, but it's also a mentality and a way that people treat each other or something like that. Yeah, I mean, those expansions of fascism as a category are problematic because it leads to stuff like Umberto Eco's Ur-Fascism in which every, I mean, literally everything that has a mythic tinge and any authoritarian tendencies at all is fascist except for liberalism. But even really liberalism is, if you think about it, like, like, you know, the callback to prior liberalisms and whatnot. Um, so yeah. So what, what other questions do you think that you have from this text? Like what, where do you think your listeners would would need need to be further like explored? Uh, one thing I did think was interesting, and we talked about it a, a little bit about it, was um, Adorno. You mentioned you know with the, like the jazz and stuff, and also near the end of his life during the sixties, uh, when the students movements are happening, and like you know students like flash him or something, and in, in class, and he storms out, and um, he he gets generally labeled as kind of like a prude, I guess, mm -hmm. a lot. And I I thought it was interesting how much we talked about how much he talks about like or kind of women's liberation and like sexuality and stuff in Minimum Moralia. Do you know, like, is that something that he talks about all that much more? No. So it's a pretty unique that it just occurs in this one. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't come up that much in um, in negative dialectics or dialectics of enlightenment. It's not that it's not that prominent in aesthetics. I, you know, you've read the culture industry collection of essays, right? It's not in there. So if he talks about it more, it's it's going to be in lectures and stuff that aren't readily translated, I guess. Um, one of the things that you notice about him is he does have a nostalgia for like early forms of of um, you could say like bourgeois and proletarian families. Um, but he also is highly skeptical of it. And that tension is, I think I, I think I'm fascinated by that tension because it's fairly honest. Um, well, it's like he has. We didn't talk about it, but there's the early piece on divorce that I thought was actually really pretty darn good, where he kind of says like how just the whole way that the family form in, is encapsulated into this attempt to secure safety and honest relationships and reliance on people. But any sort of like fracturing tension in that, that occurs instantly inverts it. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you just get this immense feelings of hostility or tension or all trust becomes mistrust or something like that. Because once that thing that is secure attempts to be secured and stowed away in the capitalist totality has to open up again it, it, it just doesn't like all of the everything just gets inverted back into these opposite forms which of course isn't to say that no one can have a good divorce but i think it's a it's a good an interesting point about the way that you know feelings of security get worn down or or broken apart through other Tensions. Yeah, I can read. I can actually read this because this is one I actually quote this a lot. Um, the whole sober base on which the institution of marriage arises, the husband's barbarous power over the property and work of his wife, 
the no less barbarous sexual oppression that can compel a man to take lifelong responsibility for a woman with whom it once gave him pleasure to sleep, all this crawls into the light from cellars and foundations when the house is demolished. Those who experience the good universal and restrictively belonging to each other are now forced by society to consider themselves scoundrels, no difference from the universal order of unrestricted meanness outside. The universal is revealed in divorce as its particular mark of shame because the particular marriage is in this society unable to realize the true universal. Like that's a, that's a really potent observation that like this breakdown in relations really does, you know, it, it affects you in a way that like, Oh, I've been betrayed because this, you know, my, my safety, my way out of the system, the person I don't have to compete with, even though Adorno is completely admitting that the whole institution is based off of male sexual power and social power over men and women. Um, like, you know, he calls it the barber's power over his life's labor. You know, it, it's it's descended literally from, you know, the Roman household model, which is you, you have life and death power over over your children and your sexual subordinates. Um, but that since that was stored away as a kind of refuge from the world in capitalism, it was considered off limits when it breaks down, you know, it's like, oh, my God, why have you betrayed me so bad? Um, that's an, that's a keen observation. And it's keen in that it, it, it both sees the tragedy of the situation, but also that there's real dominion in the institution itself. So there's a nostalgia for, like, you know, the order of marriage. There's also an admission that the order of marriage itself is barbarous. It's even it's even pre-capitalistically bad in some ways. You know, and that's to me that that belies that the reading of him is just a kind of red, a red social conservative is a strong misreading. Um but it is interesting that he didn't think sexual, the sexual liberation movement was going to do much about that. Like, mm-hmm. he did not think it was going to free it up. Well, it's like we we talked about how he, again, he, ha- he has this kind of nostalgia for like, ah, uh, the good old days when when you had an affair, but it was because you were just like sexually like enticed by someone or like he has this idea that like kind of you know this kind of romantic yeah like you you just really wanted to sleep with the person and you just really wanted that so that was what drove the affair and now it's all you know sexually open but it's all commoditized or like business transactiony and stuff like that which sounds kind of funny and sounds still like this weird conservatism but he's kind of making an interesting point when you i mean i think that's that's one of the problems with reading adorno today is like he gets framed as just this guy who hates consumption. Right. And he is pissed off about consumption, but he's people don't see why he's talking about it or how he's talking about consumption in a particular way. Um, I was just reading. I've been I have recently got all of the end notes shipped to me. So I've been working through those because I hadn't read them before. Um, and I just got to volume two where the first two essays, which I think are some of their best stuff, are the like the ones on like the the growth of debt and the housing crisis and they talk about with like the housing crisis in America a result of having this early emergence with you know GI bills and stuff like that the the building up of this new contradictory you know to use Eric Owen Wright's phrase the contradictory class of these homeowner people that produ- reinforces again families that own their home 
And so they need to own all this stuff that they put in their home. This drives attention for women to enter the workforce later on as certain forms of debt and stuff are piling up and tensions are occurring. So then you have, you know, every family needs to have two cars. Every family needs to have uh, the children are treated as, you know, um, things that you put on a balance sheet. It's, it's kind of I, I compared it to um, what's the the Italian filmmaker Salo. Um, um, Pasolini. Pasolini, when Pasolini, Pasolini also makes this sometimes uh, too easy thing where he says, you know, oh, post-war Italy, it's all this fascist consumption left over, which I mean, there's some truth to that because there were a lot of fascists still left over in Italy. But like that particular wave of what's occurring in reindustrialization and growth post-war, people don't take that in a context a lot. So they think that he's doing something that's kind of like some of the later DeBoard readings where he's just going like, oh, man, there's so much advertising. Truly, we are lost, which isn't really what his point point is. Yeah, no, his, his point is more, I think he's trying to deal with the way exploitation doesn't seem to fully explain everything that's going on within the working class in the modern world. And he's not alone in this, but he, it, it is not actually as vague and under theorized as like DeBoer's The Spectacle, you know, which is a very liberating book when you first read it. And then you think about it for five minutes and try to figure out what the spectacle actually really is. And you have no idea. Um, it's, I don't think that's actually true with Adorno. I think the, the mechanisms are actually somewhat clear. You know, the cultural industry, in a way, produces, to use words from Gramsci and Altrasser, things like hegemony, things like ideology. And it doesn't even need to do it consciously. It is actually doing it because of the instrumental reason of selling more. But the effect is standardization. The effect is um, numbing. The effect is social ter- social totality. The effect is identification and the use of identity, subjugating yourself to an identity. As, you know, Adorno says in negative dialectics and identification for him is, is something much bigger than like identity politics. That's not what he's talking about. Identification is like, I have a part, I have been, I have a specific role now. That role is X. That is a social role. That is an economic role, you know, and these other variables, these other, you know, experiences will get read into that. But the the form of ideology itself is the identification with this thing um, and with this role. And that freedom, you know, one of the things about that Adorno takes seriously about Marxism, I think, is class abolition really is the goal. Because it's not just that the working class have to lead the way. They have to lead the way and abolish class itself. And Adorno has not seen that happen. I mean, in a, in, a, in a key way, it does rhyme with modern communization thinkers or even, frankly, Maoists who struggle with the same thing and came up with theories like, like you know, worldwide labor aristocracy and first, second, third nations rules. That's what that's, I mean, it's actually trying to answer the same question. Hope you enjoyed this preview of our bonus episode. Again, you can listen to the whole thing if you support us for $3 a month on Patreon. Remember that our next roundtable is going to be Liberalism and Democracy by Noberto Bobbio. 
so pick that up if you want to read ahead. I hope you enjoyed this clip, and I hope you'll join us next time.